Good morning. Good to see everyone out this morning. As you have heard, we're going to continue our series taking a look at the New Testament church. And we're partway through, and so we'll kind of try to put this into perspective with everything else in just a moment. But before we actually get into that, perhaps we could just uh, open in a word of prayer one more time. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you. Thank you for the hope that this season reminds us of. The season itself does not bring us hope. It's just another series of traditions that our culture celebrates. But the hope comes from you because you sent your son into the world to die for our sins, to redeem us to yourself, and to put us together into a relationship with you and with one another who belong to you in a special way. And and you've said that you've called out all those who belong to Jesus Christ into something separate, a a church called out ones. And, and Lord, as we desire to hear from you as to what that means and how it is that we are a part of that and what that's supposed to mean in our daily experience, Lord, we just ask that today you would lead us and guide us and, and teach us and help us not only to be hearers of the word, but doers that we might leave different than when we came with, with a new resolve, a new purpose of heart to draw closer to you, to get a greater glimpse of our Savior and to, and to do our part in this body that we belong to. We want to thank you, Lord, that we're not the only place like this here in our community, here in our country, or even around the world, but there are pockets of believers like us all around the world that are calling out to your name, that are shining the light of Christ in their own neighborhoods and that you are building your church. We thank you for that promise. We rest firmly upon it as we face the challenges of each new day. We commit this time to you, and may all things be said and done to the honor and glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 So we have begun to take a look at this thing that Jesus told his disciples about back in, in Matthew, right? When they were first discovering who he was, he said, listen, I am going to build my church. And so he established it. He, he gave his life for it. And, and, uh, and so he has given us instruction as to what it ought to be like. And, and so we've taken a look at what is the true church and how to recognize it from the counterfeit church. And uh, ways that it's described and even pictured in the Bible with metaphors. And there was six of them, right? The, a house and a body and a temple and a lampstand, and um, a bride, and I'm missing one because I, I didn't do them in any particular order. Uh, which one? Field. A field, that's right. And, um, or a garden, I think it was even described as, yes. And so uh, each of these have meaning to them, helping us to try to get a taste of, a picture of the various aspects of all that's a part of this thing called the church. And we noted last week that, that there is a purpose to this church. The blueprint comes from the Word of God itself, but there is a purpose for it. Um, and each of these metaphors actually hint at various parts of that purpose. And, um, and now today we want to take a look at uh, the power of the church. Where does it come from? And before I actually get into the message, I just like, would like to uh, give you a little illustration of uh, something this morning. So I brought a little something from home. My craftsman tool here, and uh, I just have you know that um, that it's real, right? And uh, it has a purpose, right? And 
uh, its actual purpose is to be able to cut wood. And we can look at it and study it and say it's got various parts and, and study how they go together and say, well, it's got a design to it. You know, well, hey, there's something missing here. Hold on. Yes, it needs a blade in order to cut, right? So it's not just a matter of having this main piece, but when we stick that in there, okay, now it's got a blade to cut the wood, and it actually has this little thingy here to help you get it in nice and easy. And uh, if you're cutting at different angles, you know, it turns a little bit so you can get a different cut from time to time. And, and uh, now you got to be careful you get if the right tool because each tool has its own purpose, and, and uh, some may be even mislabeled. Uh, this one happens to be a craftsman, and you can tell that if you look because uh, its sign and its logo is on here as it is on the bag. And uh, <clears throat> I figured, you know what, I'm going to give you a little demonstration this morning on how it works, right? So uh, I got my tool, and I'm going to use, you just squeeze this little trigger here. Hmm. Okay, it's not working. It's not plugged uh, It's what? It's not plugged not plugged in. Excuse me. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, it won't work unless we hook it up to uh, the power source, right? So it just so happens we've got an electrical cable here, and uh, I'm going to plug it in. All right? You think that'll work better now, Earl? Yes. Well, let's see here. Oh, there's a light came on. And so, ah, now it's working, right? So, uh, in order for this tool to work, now we can study it all we want, right? But until we plug it into its source of power, it's not going to work, right? Now we can try to force the thing on there, but going through all the motions, even figuring out how it's supposed to lay on the wood and pushing it across, it's not going to do it until we plug it into the power source, right? And as we plug it in, we'll notice that there are a few different things, these little prongs here, that help it to connect to the power source. And uh, we do this every day without even thinking about it at home, right? But when we think about the church, see, we have been studying its form and what it looks like and, and, and how it's supposed to function and even its purpose. But until we really come to terms with how the church is supposed to get its power, what is the power source? And until we figure out how it is that we plug into that power, the church is not going to function like it's supposed to. It may have all the outward form, but the power will be missing. And uh, this is, as I started to, to prepare for today's message, I thought, you know, this is really a powerful concept because... Listen, when it comes down to outward form, the way we do things as a church, someone on the outside may look at the actual movements and activities and not be able to see any difference between what we are doing and what they are doing, even if they're not truly a part of God's church. So what's the difference? It's the power of God in his true church that will make the difference. The power is available, even as the power was available here. It's, it's ready and available, but it wasn't plugged in. And so what we're going to do is, first of all, consider the power of the church and what it is. And then we want to go back and take a look and see how is it that the church is supposed to be 
plugged into that power source to make, make sure that we're really drawing from that power and applying it in our daily lives and as individuals and as a church corporately, right? Because um, this is important. The church, according to the scriptures, is not this building. It's not signing up for some large group even beyond this building. The Bible says that every single person who individually puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of that called out group of people. That's what the word church means. It's the word it comes from, from the New Testament. And, and so all those people who've been born into God's family, whom God has put together into this thing called the church, in order for that church to operate as it should, the individual members of it need to be operating as we should. And so there's a, a little introspection that we need to do as a church together, but also as individuals as part of his church. And so I hope that, that this will be an encouragement as well as a challenge to us today as we consider this concept. So if you'll join me then um, as we go to the scriptures, I'd like to first of all start with... Um, Acts chapter 1. Now, at first when I started studying this, I thought, oh, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> and then I started looking at, at uh, further and further. I said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't just want just to follow an outline that someone else has presented. I want to try to see this in the Word of God and know that we're really on track with what His Word has to say because it is our blueprint, right? And uh, this is a vast topic to try to, to take in, okay, not just what is the power, but how did the early church demonstrate that they were depending upon and drawing from that power uh, so that we can put it into practice ourselves, right? So here we are in Acts chapter 1, and um, it says this, The former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, and we're going to stop right there, uh, this book, the Acts of the Apostles, was written by Luke, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, uh, just a few books before this in your New Testament, right? And at the beginning of that book, Luke says to this man named Theophilus, whose name means lover of God, that he was writing this for him so that he could really know the, the accurate account of how things unfolded as he had, you know, people were saying all kinds of things and they get a little bit here and a little bit there. But he said, I want you to know that, that I've gone all the way back to the eyewitnesses to deliver to you that which we also have received and, and witnessed so that you could have perfect understanding of all these things from the very first and put it into an orderly account. And so all the gospel of Luke that's what he does. He chronologically goes through the life of Christ and explains what Jesus began to do and teach. That's what he says here in verse 1 of Acts 1, right? The former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until, verse 2, in which the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So here he says, listen, 
I told you about all these things about how he lived and died and rose again. And now he presented himself to these witnesses for 40 days after he rose from the dead, proving these things to them that he really had risen from the dead. Verse four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So I want you to notice he gives them instruction. He says, listen, uh, he's, about, he's already told him he's going to be leaving, but he says, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until you receive this promise from the Father, which he says in verse 5 is indeed the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or season which the father put in his own authority. But verse eight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So Jesus says, OK, I'm about to leave and I'm, I, I want to give you the instructions that you need in order to carry on when I'm done. Right. It says that. The first account was what he had begun both to do and to teach. Now what's Jesus going to do? Well, he says, I'm leaving, but I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit, that promise from the Father. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will also receive power. And when that happens, you will be witnesses to me right there in Jerusalem. And he says, in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And that's the end of the instruction, because while Jesus was speaking these things, he's taken up out of their sight. So this is the instruction that he gave them. And this is the promise that he gave them. You wait for the promise of the father, the Holy Spirit, and he will bring the power that you need to be my witnesses and my representatives to carry on the work that I have for you here. So as we look at this itty bitty little group of disciples, 11 apostles, but more than that, it says that there were others who had also been followers of Christ. They met together with them here in Jerusalem and waited along with them for the Holy Spirit. So 120 people are gathered together in this little room waiting for God's promise to take place, his power through the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And when you go to chapter 2, you find out that's exactly what happened. Here they were gathered together. In one place, verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, which is 10 days later, and while they're all with one accord in one place, it says in chapter 2, verse 2, that suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a, right, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And thus began the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus made a promise that he would send the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled that promise on this day when he sent the Holy Spirit. And God's power dwelt in them to accomplish his purpose through them. So, this little teeny group of people in the face of a pagan culture, a religious culture of the Jews that had gone awry, opposition from the leaders who actually are responsible for having turned the people to put Christ on the cross. And somehow that church is faced with the need to survive. But God said, I'm going to give you the power. 
and it came from Jesus when he ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, promised from the Father, to live amongst them. Did it work? Well, if you read the book, you know, right? The power of God worked mightily in these, in these men, in these followers of Christ. And we are here today as a result of the work that God began then and is continuing to do in the world today through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the short answer to the question, what is the power of the church? The Holy Spirit. It's the power of God uh, committed to us through His Holy Spirit. And uh, we can count on that just like the disciples did, right? Jesus made a profound statement back in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, 18. I know we've referred to this. We'll come back to it again, I'm sure. But when he had his disciples alone and they'd been hearing all kinds of things about Jesus from other people and Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus commended him. He says, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, a stone, and on this rock, referring to himself, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So here we have two promises that Jesus made. He said, listen, I will build my church. It's not a, a, a hopeful thing. It's not maybe it'll work. He says, I will build my church. It's his church. He's committed to building it. And then he said, I'm going to give you the power to be my witnesses. And he gave the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was looking at a verse that you're probably familiar with in Zechariah. Now, if you don't know where Zechariah is exactly, if you turn your Bible just a few pages to the left before Matthew, it's the next to last book in the Old Testament. The verse is Zechariah 4, 6, where the prophet says, He answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You familiar with that verse? Most of us are, right? Well, I said, okay, that verse came to mind as I was considering this in the New Testament. So I said, what is, what is the exact context of that verse? And I thought this was very interesting, right? If you'll take a brief tour with me through Zechariah to just reinforce this concept that Jesus was establishing for the New Testament church, right? In the Old Testament, the Jews had been taken into captivity and the temple destroyed. But the temple was the place where God had said he would cause his name to dwell, and now it was wiped it was destroyed down to rubble and God had brought the people back into the land and told them to rebuild the temple. But they were slow in doing it. And so he raised up two prophets, um, <clears throat> Haggai and Zechariah, to prod the people towards doing what God had called them to do. And that's where we find ourselves in Zechariah. And he tells them in, ver in chapter one, verse three, return to me and I will return to you. I had spoken to your fathers, they disregarded me, and they found themselves in ruin. And now I'm calling you, return to me, and I'm going to return to you. And we read, down in verse 6, it says, so they returned. And 
he received some other uh, prophecies. We're not going to dwell on that middle part of chapter 1, but it's interesting. Um, the Lord began to answer them, verse 13, and said, uh, the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. What are these good and comforting words? Notice verse 14. The angel spoke with me saying, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem. Verse 16. Therefore, the Lord says, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy and my house shall be built in it. He says, listen, I I had turned away from you with my kindness because of your disobedience. But now that you've returned to me, I'm returning to you and I will build my temple. I'm returning to you. I will build my temple. That's what the Lord said to him. And so he says, a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And here the vision of Zechariah, as he looks, he sees this man, chapter two, going out with a measuring line in his hand. And he's measuring the city because he's got the plans to build. And um, the Lord calls out once again to the people and he says to them to come to him. For he, verse 8, who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. He says, you are a special people to me, and these ones who have done you harm, I will be a wall around you to defend you, because you've returned to me, and I will be a wall to protect you. Those who touch you will touch the apple of his eye. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst. That's what the temple was going to be for. And so he says, here the building is coming, but the building is not just for nothing. He wants worshipers. So he tells us in chapter three, okay, Joshua, you're the one who's supposed to be the high priest, but where do we see him? Verse one, he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is accusing him at his right hand. And it says, the Lord says to Satan, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua, verse three, was clothed in filthy garments, standing before the angel But he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head. They put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So here's this one who was meant to be a priest, but he's unclean. And the Lord, although he was guilty and Satan was letting him know all the guilt that he was deserving of, but yet... God said, no, cleanse him, take off the filthy garments and give him the clean ones. So after cleansing him, verse six, he's commissioned. And the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you'll keep my command, he says, then you will judge my house and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. And so he, he commissions the priests to be able to function in that house that the Lord said, my house shall be built. And so as they began to set out to do the work, he says, how is it that they're going to be able to do this? Here's my message to Zerubbabel. Listen, Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by power, but it will be by my spirit. Nothing has changed in the way God works. Yes, there were all kinds of regulations as to how they were supposed to function, but it wasn't going to be because of their own doing. They work harder or they try to be as detailed as they can. No, the power to pull off the work that God had to do was going to be done by his spirit. And so that was the Lord's message to the Old Testament saints there in Zechariah as they were building God's dwelling place, his temple in the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament reminds us that God doesn't dwell in buildings. 
anymore. He's dwelling amongst his people within them. And he said, I will build this church. And we're not going to build it by programs. We're not going to build it by our tradition, by all of our hard work. If it's going to be built, it's going to be built because it's the Holy Spirit's power working in us and working through us. So, how then do we make sure that we're plugged in to God's power to see Him work? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So I said to myself, okay, Dave, it's the Holy Spirit. So how do we see the early church, the book of Acts, the acts of the apostles themselves as the Holy Spirit came on them? What did they do? How was the Holy Spirit working in them? How do we see it witnessed? So starting here in chapter one, I got out my little highlighter and I said, we're going to watch. And as I went along, I said, "Okay, here's here's what it says they did or here's what says was happening amongst them or in them. And this is the pattern that they laid. This is the example of their lives as they practiced this. So how do we follow that? What is it that God's going to be looking for in you and me? What what are the signs, those those means, like the prongs on the plug that go into the outlet, right? Those are the means by which the plug goes into the outlet. There must be some means by which we are to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit to live our lives as we should as the church of God, as, as parts of that body. So let's see what we can see. Now, <clears throat> I just here's how I did it. I just started walking through. And as I started to see things repeat, I went back up and I put a little, uh, another reference next to that same idea until I saw groups of things starting to come together. Because I said, you know, we can come up with all kinds of cute outlines, but uh, unless it's really reflecting the text, it's not going to be, it's just contrived and it, just in a message. But, but we want to see what did they really do, right? And so... Let me just make some observations here and then we'll come back and group them and talk about them. Can we do that? It says here that Jesus told them in verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise. So Jesus is now ascended. What did they do? Chapter 1, verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, and it lists all the others who were there with them. And verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so they re- look what they did. They obeyed the Lord's command. He said, stay here in Jerusalem. Did they stay? Yes, they did. So they went back to the place in Jerusalem where they'd been staying, and they stayed there. And they waited. But they didn't just sit there and twiddle their thumbs while they waited. What did they do? Well, it says in verse 14, they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So they were being obedient to the Lord, but they were also in one accord. Now that phrase is going to come up a lot here too. What does that mean to be one accord? It doesn't mean you're all huddled in a Honda, right? The word for one accord means to be one or united in passion together. Like one who is, the word comes from breath or breathing, right? So if you have exerted yourself in a battle or a race, you get winded. 
because of the energy, the passion that you were exerting in running that direction. And you see, they were passionate together in one accord, in, in, in unity, united together in this passionate pursuit of waiting for God's promise. And as they were waiting, it says they were praying together and making supplication, a request together to God. And so they were praying for one another and for the, word, the, the answer to the promise to come to them. That's what they were doing while they were waiting. They were praying in one accord. And so while they're there, notice verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of them and he begins to speak to them and says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. And I'm not going to read you the whole entire passage, but you'll notice he's preaching to them the word of God. He says, the scriptures said this, and he begins to enlighten them. He says that, that these things had to happen. And in fact, they did happen. And now he says, there's another scripture that says that another should rise up to take the place of Judas. And so he's putting the scriptures together, presenting it to the people. And when they heard it, guess what they did? They responded to it. Verse 23, then they proposed two men, Joseph and Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. So now these two men are put forward as possibilities to replace Judas. And what did they do? Oh, verse 24. Then they prayed and said, Oh Lord, you know the hearts of all men. You tell us who you want to be the next one. They cast lots and it fell to Matthias and they numbered him amongst the apostles. And now we're back to 12. And so chapter two, the day of Pentecost comes it's now 10 days later, they were all together. What? With one accord in one place. They're continuing to be gathered together in one place as a group. And they're praying together and they're in one accord together while they're doing it. You can see easily how the patterns are starting to develop, right? While they're there, here comes the promise. They're waiting on God for it. They're asking him in prayer. And suddenly this mighty rushing wind falls upon them and the spirit divides himself like tongues of fire on their heads and they begin to proclaim the word of God and miraculously so in languages they've never spoken before. Real languages from about 17 different people groups who were in Jerusalem witnessing the reality of what God was doing in their lives. And as they were there, people didn't understand what it was. They thought they were drunk. And so once again, Peter stands up Chapter 2, verse 14, and in the midst of these people, raises his voice to speak to the people, and he begins to tell them, men of Judah, listen, here's what the word of God says would happen. God's spirit would be poured out on all flesh, and they would all, the sons and daughters would begin to prophesy. He's preaching the word of God to the people. And it's a long message, but when he gets down to the end of it, he challenges them to repent to forget about the course that they had taken in rejecting Jesus Christ and now turn to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 38. And so in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, baptism is what Matthew 28, Jesus commanded the disciples to do. So you see, once again, they were practicing what God had commanded them to do. They baptized these believers. And what did those new believers do? Well, they, verse 42 says, continued steadfastly. 
That means they began to do it, but they continued to do it, and faithfully so. They were, they were continuing to be faithful to do these things, and this is why we as a local church seek to do these same things. They were continuing in the apostles' doctrine or teaching. They were continuing in fellowship with each other. That means they were spending time together, sharing together in the things that God was doing in their lives, in the breaking of bread, worshiping the Lord. And in prayers, and fear came on all, every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were sharing not only their time and space with each other, they were sharing their very means. People were selling their possessions, verse 45, and dividing them amongst all these other people, whoever had need. And so, verse 46, continuing daily with one accord, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And you see what we see? Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The power of God was moving in them and through them as they were plugged in in these different ways to the Holy Spirit. Now, we've only gone through two chapters. Um, but you're going to begin to see the same things over and over again. But what we're going to see changing is where it's happening. Right? From place to place. It says in chapter 3 that Peter and John went up together to go to the temple. They were together again. They go to the temple to worship. But on the way, while they're just carrying on in life, suddenly they see this man. Peter reaches out to him. In the name of Jesus, the man is healed and people are uh, all like mystified by this. And so Peter begins to speak to the people and preach the word of God. But now we see something different introduced. There's opposition once again, right? They begin to be arrested, challenged and commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. But it's what they continue to do. Um, People were hearing the message and believing and added to the number. They began to gather together again and time and again, filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak to the people. Now, I don't see these things happening. I want to be careful here. <laughs> um, we see patterns. We're not going to have time to go through the whole book of Acts, right? But Paul began to reveal a pattern. When he would go into a city, he went to the synagogue, to the marketplace, where he would go meet people and preach the word to them. This was his pattern. It was a habit. He did it with the team of men together, purposefully so. We seek as a local church to try to have purposeful reaching out with the word of God to the people around us, to share the gospel, just like that. But what I also see as a very powerful part of this pattern are the individuals who are part of this church doing the same thing individually, right? Let's go to chapter 8. <clears throat> so as they continue to do the same thing, they're fellowshipping together, they're coming together to pray, they're, they're uh, um, breaking bread and worshiping the Lord together. They are uh, proclaiming the word of God to one another and to those outside. People are getting saved. They're coming together. The pattern is reproducing. But now, with all this opposition, they stone Stephen 
as he finishes his message. And in chapter 8, Saul rises up and gets permission from the Jewish leaders to go arrest all these believers to put them in prison and persecute them. And verse 4 tells us, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The individuals, as they went everywhere, were preaching the word. We have one example from Philip. He went down to Samaria. He preached Christ to them. And uh, then he, he goes uh, into Samaria later. Okay, verse later, later on it says, uh, The whole group, many of them believed and were baptized, and he began to proclaim the name of Jesus to them. And uh, the apostles come down and pray for them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, in chapter 10, Peter is by himself, and he meets Cornelius. And uh, the, t- the Lord tells him, you go with him, and he individually goes and preaches Christ to them, and they're saved. So we see a, a responsibility here that is corporate as well as individual, right? And so uh, I, I had to make note of that in my own study, right? Because we can't just sit back and say, well, you know, our church goes to the beach. Our church, we go door to door. That's good. What about us as individuals? We all have a responsibility to be doing all these things ourselves, right? Things like the praying. Time and again, it says they came together and prayed. God was answering their prayers. When Peter was arrested, it says the whole church came together and continual prayer was being lifted for him. And he was released that night. Amazingly so. Miraculously so. Um, we were just studying in Philippians uh, last Wednesday about the importance of prayer. Paul said to the people of Philippi, I'm in prison here, but I, I, I know, he says, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Not just that the Lord was going to intervene, but he said it's going to happen through your prayers. What if, I had to ask myself this question. Do I see the power of God through the Holy Spirit, which God says that's the power that's going to help build his church. It's where it's going to come from. Do I see this power at work in my church? Do I see this power at work in my life? And to the degree that we do or don't, I'm convinced it's going to be to the same degree that we are or or are not doing what the disciples were doing. Are we here together in one place to pray in one accord like they did? Hey, listen, I don't know what else these people were doing. But they made time to get together in that upper room to pray and encourage one another. It's not easy in the midst of a busy week to get here for prayer meeting. And I know, listen, the enemy works overtime to keep us away. 
It works overtime. There's always a reason not to go where the Lord wants you to go. How easily? Let's take a look at any one of these circumstances. They commanded Peter, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Easy to say, well, I need to obey the law. But no, they said, listen, we need to obey God rather than man. So even though he's told me that, I need to obey God. I'll never forget, I was not in the habit of reading my Bible in high school. I was like, man, I'm at church all the time. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I just need to try harder. But I began to be convinced, you know what, I, I really ought to be reading it myself. And, and I made this commitment. And I, I, My cat never gave me the time of day. But how many times when I sat down at my desk to read my Bible, you know, one time he, the cat actually came up and sat on my Bible. <laughs> now I laugh about it, but um, the enemy provides all kinds of reasons that we can justify not doing what the Lord tells us to do. He says that they were continuously, steadfastly committed to studying the Word of God, the Apostles' Doctrine, to being together to fellowship with each other, to worship the Lord together, to pray together. And when they were together and had opportunity, they preached the Word of God together. And when they got in trouble for it or when things started to happening, they huddled together and said, we need, Lord, please help us to be bold because we're experiencing fear right now. And as they came together in one accord and even prayed about it, chapter 4 says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went and spoke the Word of God boldly because they were praying for boldness and God answered the question and gave them boldness. And when they did, it says that, that people with great power, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was on them all and people were getting saved. And sometimes I like to say, well, people just aren't interested in our day and age right now. They don't want to hear the word of God. But you know what? They got the same emptiness of soul, the same shame and conviction because of sin, the same need for eternal life that we do. And we were in darkness, but it's the word of God. The Bible says that the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But they can't believe if they don't hear it. And maybe the problem is in us and not in the world. That hurts, doesn't it? There's a saying I read once, and many times in my life, I've, I, I, I never even wrote it down because it was too convicting, and I didn't exactly know what to do with it. Because Jesus told Peter, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And the quote said this, if you're not fishing, you're not following Why don't I preach the word to my neighbor? Because I'm not following Jesus like I should. You know, when they were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 19, Peter answered, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But notice verse 20. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We talked about this morning being in the darkness and how God has brought us into the light. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We've received the light of Jesus Christ. Have we forgotten 
the hope that that brought to us? Have we forgotten the peace that we now have in our hearts from where we've come from so that it's not overflowing in our hearts to share with those around us? You know, when Jesus spoke a letter to the Apostle John to write to the churches in the book of the Revelation. The first church was the church at Ephesus. And he had great things to say to them. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those that are e- who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and found them to be liars. You've persevered and have patience. You've labored for my namesake and have not become weary, but nevertheless I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Is it possible we have lost our first love for the Lord as his people? I don't know, I speak to myself. Why is the power not revealing itself like I would like to see in myself. Am I praying like I should? Am I with one accord with my brothers and sisters like I should? Either being in one place like I should, or am I at odds? This is interesting. In chapter 6, there arose a dispute amongst the disciples. There was a complaint. They said, listen, they're showing preference to this group and not to this group, and it's offending me. Because I'm one of that group that's being slighted. There was division amongst them. Here they were at a crossroads. Is the power of the Lord going to continue? What's going to happen? It's been growing. And suddenly it's not just pressure from the outside. Within the church, this complaint arose. And you know what? They dealt with it. They didn't avoid it or pretend it wasn't there. They went and they summoned the people together, the disciples, and they said, listen, it's too important for us to be spending time in the Word and in prayer. We're not going to stop that to deal with this situation. But you, search amongst yourselves for someone who's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and bring them so we can appoint them to deal with this and make things right. And they did. They found Stephen who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And it says they laid hands on these men. They, pr- they prayed for the group of men that they were presented, Stephen being one of them. And it says, Then the word of God spread and a number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Because they dealt with what was going on inside. The sin, the, the, the offense was taken care of. You know, am I dealing with the offense in my own life? The Bible says, listen, God is light. And if I'm walking in darkness and I'm not dealing with the darkness that he's showing me in my own life, I'm deceiving myself. I'm not walking in the light. I can't have fellowship with God or with anybody else if I'm really walking in sin. But if we deal with that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, bring us right back into the light like we should be. Are we in one accord with our brothers and sisters and with the Lord like we should be? They were. God's power poured out. How about... Uh, the sharing of life together. It says they shared all things in common. They gave. They, were, they, they found out that there was going to be a famine coming, and they said, "Let's send. Let's send some resources down to Judah for those saints, so they can so they can have need." They they were together in one place, continually sharing meals together and and sharing life together, encouraging one another. You know, this is the part 
that comes back to um, Ephesians says this. So part of this body. He says he gave gifts so that together we can build one another up. How long until we all become conformed to the image of Christ, to the full, mature man like him? We're still not there. And so we still need to be together, every part doing its share to be able to build one another up. And so, okay, the groupings. I never came back to the actual grouping, right? Randy Amos put it this way, praying, preaching, and purity of life. The praying and preaching stuck out to me so perfectly. The purity of life. I said, is, is that really the way I would summarize what I see here in Acts? It's part of it because they were dealing with the sin. They were trying to be obedient. But I really liked the way it says it in Acts chapter 11. When the word came to Antioch, This is the first time the church had gone beyond the Jews and now was encompassing Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists. It says that they turned to the Lord in great number. And so the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to go down to Antioch. And look what it says in verse 23, Acts 11:23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. I said, I like that. If you want it alliterated in P's, that's my P. Prayer, preaching, and purpose of heart to continue with the Lord. That doesn't happen by accident. It was purposeful to keep walking with the Lord. And so what did that entail? Well, you know what? They had to choose to fellowship together. They had to choose to walk in obedience to the Lord. They had to choose to set their hearts again and again towards these things. I said, well, if the, if the Holy Spirit is the key, then, then the Bible says it this way in other places, right? Ephesians chapter 5, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That means if I am sinning, the Spirit of God is trying to work in me to convict me not to do that thing, but I am grieving the Spirit by continuing to walk in it. I'm quenching the power of God in my life by grieving the Holy Spirit. It would say in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Here the Spirit's saying, hey, go talk to that person. Uh-uh. I am pouring water on the flame of God's Spirit within me to do the right thing by numbing my conscience and my will to His will. And so, Ephesians 5.18 would say, Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually being filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And so in order to do that, we have to do what he says or we quench him. We have to not do what he says not to do or else we grieve him. But if we walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We will gain the victory through the power of God in our daily lives. And as we come together as believers, as we're faithful to these things we will see his power working in us. Now, it may not look exactly like it did in their day, but we will see the power of God working. The importance of taking this seriously. You know, there is a story back in the Old Testament again in Joshua chapter 8 
they had just had a tremendous victory, right? Jericho, the first city they came to in the promised land, and God showed them, here's the battle plan for conquering it. They marched around the city. They obeyed the Lord. They did a great job obeying the Lord. He told them the plan, march around in silence and go home. Nobody shot an arrow. Nobody shouted. They obeyed. And finally, the seventh day, they march around the seven times. They shout to the Lord. The Lord pulls the walls down. They rush into the city, and they get the spoils. And God told them, listen, you destroy everything. Don't take anything for yourself. The spoil is the Lord's. But they had a great victory. But there was that one man. That one man, Achan, who saw that bar of gold and that Babylonian garment. And he took it and he hid it in his tent. And the people were so excited after their victory. They saw this little town of Ai not far away. Just a few thousand people. They said, listen, we don't all need to go against this little city. Look, we just conquered Jericho. God is on the move. Let's just send a small troop of people and they'll take the city and, and we'll just kind of recover. And you know, they were routed by that little city. They suffered a terrible defeat. And so Joshua comes back and he pours himself, throws himself on the ground before the Lord saying, Lord, what happened? And the Lord said, get up. There's sin in the camp. And you won't have victory until you deal with that. Thousands of people died because of one man's sin in the camp of Israel. And so they, they sought out what it was, and the Lord revealed that it was Achan. And unfortunately, he didn't come forward to volunteer that he had been the one sinning. And God's judgment was that he had to be burned, and he was killed that day. And after that, the Lord said, Now, here's how you're going to have the victory. And he gave them the instructions, and they, and they won. Is it possible that my life could hinder the progress of the work of God amongst all of us? Yes. Is it possible that, that my family can be held back by what the Lord wants to do in my family because of me? Yes. Is it possible that the work of God all across our nation is being hindered because lots of us as individuals are not purposing to continue with the Lord the way they did. But is it possible that this can be turned around? Yes. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we'll be right back walking in the light. And we can pray like we should, preach like we should, because we'll be overflowing in gratitude for what we're seeing and hearing in our own life and building one another up in our most holy faith, waiting on the power of God to do what he wants to do. Don't know exactly what that is. Now, I think about what it must have been like for the apostles. What in the world did they think when they went up there to that upper room? God was at it. It wasn't until chapter 11 that they finally called them Christians. But this church that God said he would build, there was a lot of mystery involved. But they were faithful to look to the Lord, to wait on Him and let Him work through them with the power of the Holy Spirit. May God help us to stay plugged in to Him. I didn't leave myself time. I thought it was interesting. If it, 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 to help us in our introspection, so how about going back to those metaphors of the purpose of the church and say, Lord, if, if we're supposed to be a house where you dwell, do you feel at home in me? 
If I'm supposed to be a lampstand that shines the light, how bright is that light that comes from me? If I'm supposed to be the body that's growing and maturing and your hands available for your service, how am I doing? And as a temple that offers worship and praise, or as a garden or vine that bears fruit, or a bride that has a a love and an intimate relationship with you, Lord, how am I doing at fulfilling your purpose in me? And how are we doing as a church as a result? Because we can be holding back what the Lord wants to do if we don't cooperate with him and plug into his power. May God help us. And listen, if you're here today, maybe you're not even part of the church. Maybe you've heard all about it. It's interesting. We were reading just the other day and this verse leaped off the page. Those Pharisees that were coming against Jesus, it says, they denied God's will for them. God wanted, he says he desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's given us the ability to resist him. The greatest tragedy is for those who it's too late, but it's not too late for you if you're here today. Listen, if you need to draw closer to the Lord, if you need to repent, if you need to get saved, come talk to us and we'll introduce you into our, to our great Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, oh, I know I haven't done adequate uh, articulation of what you have done or will do and desire to do in this world, but we know that you desire to lift up the Lord Jesus that his name be made great and that others be drawn to him. And for some strange reason, you've chosen not to use the angels to do it. You've chosen to use us. You said, I'm going to make you into this called out group of people and I'm going to build you into what I want you to be. And so he promised for that spirit to come to make it happen. Lord, please help us to respond in obedience to your spirit today. And wherever you have challenged us may we repent and yield and see from where we have fallen and do the first works again come back to the beginning and do the fundamentals of drawing close to you and drawing from your spirit we thank you for how you've committed yourself to the church you sent jesus to die for it and you placed your own name upon it you've empowered us with your holy spirit and so as we bear your name help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.